Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details.
Hey, folks, Roland Martin here, broadcasting live from Miami, Florida, site of the National Association of Black Journalists Convention. Today is Tuesday, August 6, 2019. Coming up on Roland Martin. Morrison. She passed away today uh, at the age of 88. We'll talk with Susan Taylor, of course, the longtime editor of Essence Magazine, about her dear friend, Toni Morrison. Also on today's show, civil rights and gun reform organizations unite to demand action against white supremacy. We'll tell you how voter suppression in Georgia keeps black people out of office. The Black Census Project is being used to identify the issues you should be aware of as you head to the polls. And Texas Mounted Police leave a man behind their horses, a black man behind their horses on a leash. The police department is now apologizing. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell groupies post a picture on social media of them abusing a cutout of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Folks, and yet another episode of Crazy Ass White People. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best belief, he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Yeah, yeah. It's on go, 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 y'all. Yeah, yeah. It's rolling, Martin. Yeah. Rolling with rolling now. for classic novels like Beloved and Song of Solomon passed away yesterday at the age of 88. The announcement came from her longtime publisher. She received literature's highest honors, including the Nobel Prize in Literature, the first black woman to do so, as well as the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1988. Her debut novel, The Bluest Eye, was critically acclaimed and was followed by an even bigger classic, Sula, three years later. She's being memorialized by celebrities and her fans on social media. Later in the show, we'll talk with her good friend, Susan Taylor, editor-in-chief emeritus of Essence Magazine, about the impact of Toni Morrison on the world. All right, folks, uh, let's deal with our uh, top story here. Yahoo News launched an investigation into how voter suppression in Georgia was responsible for having 10 people accused of voter fraud and locked up. They came to be known as the Quitman 10, and they were black candidates who won what are they talking about it even with the investigation and writing campaigns Troutman and Thomas won in the general election for the first time in history the school board had more black members than white about 40 days after the election of 2010 I was arrested and they knocked on the door and said uh, we have a warrant for your arrest. And I said, my arrest? Why? He said, for voter fraud. On December 21st, 2010, 10 people were arrested in connection with alleged voter fraud. This group would become known as the Quitman 10. We're now to the Fox News voter fraud unit. More arrests of officials and another absentee ballot scandal, this time in Georgia. 
Over the next four years, the Quitman 10, plus two arrested later, faced public scrutiny of the highest degree. It was a sensationalism. They needed to be able to show the public that we, had, that we were criminals. For newly minted Secretary of State Brian Kemp, a guilty verdict in a voter fraud case would be a massive victory among his Republican base. And while some members of the community stood behind the Quitman 10 plus 2, prosecutors offered a deal. If Dennard pled guilty to one charge of theft by taking, the rest would walk free. They thought if they could make an example out of me and that would kill the spirit of this movement. And, and, and we collectively agreed, nobody's bleeding out because we've done nothing. We're standing together. If you're a chicken, you can't hang with me because you can't fly. In the end, only one of the equipment 10 plus 2 went to trial, Lula Smart. I had like, what, 38, 39 counts on me. My life was on the line, you know, I could go to prison leave my family behind. I know nothing about prison life. I knew nothing about jail. I've never been inside a jailhouse. If found guilty, Smart faced spending the rest of her life in prison. Jail time of any any magnitude, and this is just my opinion now for what it's worth, it's not much. It's uh, I thought it was overkill. Let's bring in our panel, folks. A. Scott Bolden, former chair of the National Bar Association Political Action Committee, Kelly Bethel, communication strategist, and Melek Abdul, vice president, Black Conservatives Federation. Scott, I want to start with you. I mean, when we think about this case here, when we compare it to what's happening in North Carolina, where you have these white Republicans who have been arrested for, for the issue of voter election fraud, um, one of the issues that black people continue to face in these southern uh, states, uh, again, whites angry when they take power. I recall, we recall doing the story here of the black mayor who was literally locked out of City Hall because they were angry uh, with, uh, with her winning. There was another black mayor, uh, a brother who won, and sort of the same thing happened. What we're dealing with when African Americans use electoral power there are white folks in this country who are not happy, and all of a sudden, what do they do, Scott? They target them right. with jail. Yeah, I think the biggest difference between uh, the Quentin 10 uh, plus 2 and what we're seeing in North Carolina uh, with, the, with the, uh, the gentleman who went out and purposely uh, conspired and, and, and worked with others to register people, not just to register them, but also to vote, uh, there was ample evidence of that and document, documented evidence of it because he had a history of doing it. Uh, what's surprising about the Quentin 10 is that they were not only criminally prosecuted for simply registering people and getting them to the uh, polls, uh, that's just outrageous because, because they were facing jail time. And so, you know, normally you have these civil or administrative lawsuits about a voter fraud and what have you, but no one was facing jail time. And so these 10 people, these 12 people facing jail time over the right to vote and the history of black people wanting to vote and being registered to vote and that challenge uh, simply didn't make any sense. I'm not surprised only one went to trial. Uh, Kelly, again, when we, when we see these things happen, uh, there's just this fear, and I, and I keep talking about white fear. I use this hashtag white fear because that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with white folks in this country who have, frankly, been running this country, and now all of a sudden, with the demographics changing, don't want to see black folks taking control, having power, because they fear that they are going to have things taken from them. And to look at this case here, where black folks who were doing the right thing, and then all of a sudden you, t you, you got photos in orange jumpsuits, 
because you dared to actually be involved in democracy, that is shameful. It's absolutely shameful. And I wanted to point out what you said regarding power. That is the real issue here. They're afraid of power being taken away from them and possibly a retaliation type situation where they're the shoes on the other foot and they're actually reaping the consequences of centuries worth of actions. That's always been the core fear of a racist, but that's not ever been anybody's M.O. in terms of somebody who wants to just vote, who wants to just be a U.S. citizen, specifically um, people of color and black people um, in the South. So it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely shameful. But to be clear, it, it's definitely a power issue. And the fact that they have to use propaganda in order to, you know, perpetuate their stance just shows you just how Ill illegitimate it is. Uh, Malik, I think about, uh, again, the, this candidate, uh, his name was Rufus Davis. Uh, he was the mayor in Camilla, Georgia. He was locked out. They refused to give him the keys to City Hall for two years. He was elected by the people for two years. This is what black people are still dealing with in the 21st century. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Um, you know, when I was reading about the case, I, I had heard about it some years ago, but then I kind of dug into it today. I mean, you're talking about overzealous and anything that you can, any sort of synonym that's actually similar to that, that's what we have here. I and mean, I was reading, I think one of the cases, the, it was a young lady, the, one of the women, she actually helped her father um, I think maybe fill out the absentee ballot or mm -hmm. something and then went and dropped it off. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for that to be considered a crime at that point, and I think I read that, that it actually wasn't a crime, but they treated it as it was a crime. You know, this is, this is as with any sort of voter suppression or, you know, in instances of voter fraud where people are claiming that, you know, I always err on the, on the side of giving citizens, whether it's black people, white people, Hispanic or whatever, the opportunity to actually do that because it is a right that we do have. And so any yeah. effort to infringe upon that right or, yeah. you know, claim voter, voter fraud in instances where you know that's not the case, it's, it's, it's not just unfortunate, it's yeah. ridiculous. And it's yeah. something that we should continue to push back from. Yeah, but Roland, there's even more going John on here. Right, John, the, hold the hold pictures, on one second. One the... second. Johnny right now is John Ward. Okay. Senior, well, John Ward, a senior political correspondent for Yahoo News, uh, who was responsible before the investigation. Uh, John, glad to have you back here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. John, as I, I was looking at this story, again, I was thinking about this mayor uh, in uh, Camilla, Georgia, Rufus Davis, where not only would they not give him the keys to the city, this is a city that was 70% black. The way they drew the districts guaranteed that whites would have half of the seats on the city council, even though it's 70% black. And in fact, the city manager forced through some rules that would strip the mayor of all ability to lead and also appointments. And what we're dealing with here, we're dealing with, in a lot of these places, small rural America, where, sure, black folks might be even the majority, but whites have been controlling the power there. Uh, and this is about power. This is about control. This is about access to dollar. This is about uh, being in charge of things. Uh, and so reading about the, uh, the, the, uh, the equipment 10 is just stunning. Yeah, hey, Ron, it's good to be with you again. Um, and, yeah, there's a lot of layers to this. It is a lot of it about power. And you're right. I mean, a lot of these smaller towns like Whitman um, are really kind of still stuck in time in some ways because until this entire case happened, um, everybody in that county pretty much voted Democratic, uh, black, white, conservative, liberal. And it wasn't until this happened, actually, that 
you began to see a breakdown where where white voters began to move towards the Republican Party, which is something that has happened throughout the South, you know, much earlier in most places. But in these more rural places, uh, they were still they didn't have any need to move to the Republican Party because the white power structure there uh, pretty much ran things through their Democratic uh, structure or through the Democratic Party, I should say. So, so let's let's break this down. So again, we talk about the Southern strategy. Uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that yeah, there were white, there were white Dixiecrats who switched to the GOP. But the reality is, you still had a lot of these whites who stayed in the Democratic Party. And this is where I keep trying to explain to people: the issue here is not who's Democrat or who's Republican. The issue is who's white and who's black. Yeah, and I, I really don't. Uh, it kind of causes my brain to kind of short circuit when I hear people pointing out that, you know, Democrats used to be uh, for segregation and Republicans, you know, fought uh, against slavery in the Civil War. It's just sort of ignoring everything that's happened over the last 50, 60 years. Um, So it doesn't really make any sense to kind of point to what the parties were doing 50, 60 years ago or even more recently than that. It really is about sort of what's happened since civil rights and up to the present day. Um, so I agree with you. It, it does break down to racial politics um, and, and who's black and who's white. Unfortunately, in these smaller towns, um, it, it's very stratified. And it's interesting. When I went down there, I made two trips down there. And people, I think, go out of their way to not talk about this stuff unless they absolutely have to. Um, that applies not just to the more recent political um, developments, but especially even more so to the the more horrific incidents that have taken place there uh, within the last century. Uh, Last question for you, you, John. And I think we're going to see more of this because we're seeing more African-Americans who are moving back south. Uh, And I think that that we're going to see more of these stories. And as, and I keep telling everybody, everything that we're dealing with today is about 2043. But we're moving to a nation that's becoming majority people of color. And this right. white fear that is that is taken, that is gripping this nation. We're seeing this with a shooter in El Paso. We're seeing the attacks on uh, undocumented workers, which is really attacks on uh, Latinos and Hispanics. What we are seeing is is where people are going, oh my God, this thing is happening where we have been able to run America, run these states, run these cities, these towns, these rural places, these counties for a long time, and now we are going to have to share power. Voter suppression is based upon all this as well. This is about power and control, which also means the power and control of resources. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I think, you know, even if you look at the details of this case, uh, I think part of the reason that the prosecution didn't succeed is that they were hand-handed in some ways, but they also, the laws had been changing when it came to absentee ballots. And so I think there were elements of the law regarding how many absentee ballots an individual is allowed to handle, right? I think in some cases, in some states, they have different limits on this. In Georgia, I believe it is 10, but they never went after one of the defendants who handle a lot of these absentee ballots for that. They went after her for some for other things that were really kind of a, a mishandling of the law. And the point there is that there's always gonna be parts of the law that you can go after people for on um, small, you know, slip ups they might have made, small mistakes or um, technicalities, right? That's the way that the law can be used as a weapon. And so I do think to the degree that there are people out there 
in power who want to use the power of the government um, to suppress the vote, there's always going to be ways for them to do that. And, and, and the, the trick will be to see how sophisticated they can become in doing this as the laws develop and evolve. All right. John Ward, I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Scott, I want to go to you. Uh, you want to make a point there. Uh, and this, this new Tennessee law that, was, uh, that they also pushed through, same thing, targeting people who are registering folks to vote. And this is the thing that people have to understand, Scott, how these southern states, how they are trying to disenfranchise African-Americans. So it's not just a question of, oh, I'm going to try to keep you from voting. I'm going to try to control the apparatus that has the ability to register and get people to vote. Well, that's why voting is so important in regard to your local prosecutors as well, because local prosecutors, if they are uh, educated and, uh, and, and, and despite their politics, uh, have the discretion, so much discretion, as to whether you prosecute the Quentin, uh, Quentin 10 or not. But secondly and more importantly, look at the apparatus for suppression. The GOP cannot win unless they suppress the black vote, not just in the South, but all over we're seeing it. So that's why they do it. But look at the images, the, the, the orange jumpsuits, the press, uh, all of that as part of the arrest wasn't just about the, the equipment 10, it was about putting the chilling effect and sending a message to those that come after the equipment 10 uh, that, that, that you will be prosecuted if you register people to vote, if you deal with voter um, absentee uh, ballots. Uh, uh, the, the chilling effect for what comes after them was even a more powerful message and more disturbing here. And so um, whether it's Tennessee or whether it's Illinois or whether it's North Carolina, we got to fight it at every juncture. But, but, but voting and voting reasonable people, Democrats in and people who look like us into these power-making decision-makers uh, is super important, especially local prosecutors. All right, then, folks, let's go to our uh, next story here, and that is uh, something we've been covering. That is a coalition of civil rights and gun reform organizations have united to demand action against white supremacy. In a news release, they said, quote, the tragedies of this past weekend represent a confluence of two dangerous forces, the rise of white supremacist terror and our federal government's inaction on common sense gun safety. At a rally today, Sherilyn Eiffel, president of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, had this to say. Justice. It contains within it a civil rights division that is empowered to enforce the civil rights laws of the nation. This woman, Vanita Gupta, used to lead that department when that department had integrity, when that department was committed to the enforcement of the nation's civil rights laws. That is our department. They get paid by us. We right. are taxpayers. Right. And we have the right to demand that the Attorney General, Bill Barr, reveal and tell us what is his plan. What's the plan we want from him? We want a plan to investigate, infiltrate where necessary, and prosecute white supremacist violent organizations. They'll do it in a for any other kind of organization, but they won't do it for these, and we need that. We have oversight committees in the House and the Senate that must bring those people to sit at the table and explain what their plan is to protect us, because El Paso cannot happen again.
You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital yeah, show out here that sense. keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, sorry about that, folks. I had a slight technical issue there, uh, so now I am back. I want to go to our panel. Uh, Melik, I want to start with you. What we are, I, I fundamentally believe that what we are witnessing is a real threat, not only to America, but specifically black people and others. What we are seeing with this sort of rhetoric, we're seeing this rise in hate among white men in this country. We're seeing this when it comes to domestic terrorism. And this administration tries, spend his time talking about black identity extremists and ignoring what was happening with uh, these white domestic terrorists. And I'm telling you right now, this country better get it together and confront what's going on here because as we get close to 2043, this is not going away. We're going to see, I believe, more and more of this, and we must deal with this reality of white supremacy and white nationalism. Melik? Yeah, I think it's something that we should deal with. Um, I'm not really sure if, um, you know, the people who signed on to the letter, you know, go ahead, you know, sign the letter. What I kind of push back from, and which I don't think is a good idea, um, is the notion that they're tying all of these instances, particularly the ones that just happened this weekend. We don't have any sort of information that the person in Dayton, Ohio, was actually a white supremacist. And this is, you know, not all of these mass shootings have been committed by white supremacists. And that's, that is something that we should address. Forty-three out of the last 60 have been, have been committed by white nationalists. If you look at the rhetoric in El Paso, you can say that yeah, about but, but Dayton. That, but, but that's in El, El Paso. Paso but look yeah. at his manifesto yeah. well, and look well, at so you have Trump's El Paso speeches, and, and they have, mirror one another. You have El Paso and you have Las, the Las Vegas shooting. Pittsburgh. We, we have the shooter in Florida. Texas. I can't think the Florida, the Florida. one that we have. You keep going down the, the road. That we have. I can't, All I can't of them, white nationalists. But black and brown but, people under attack. But in you this particular case. You disagree But this is not a matter. Matter, this is not a matter of no. I know. Oh yeah, I absolutely oh, you don't disagree. Think so. Well, I actually, well, this, into this, that case, you lost, I actually then. do. You I actually lost. I know well, I'm not lost. I just Both don't agree. Both of that. you stop. Stop. Both of you stop. No one watching can hear anything. Both of you are saying if you're talking over each other. Melik, finish your point. Then Scott. Then Kelly. Well, in this particular case, I think Dayton was one of the first instances where we had a majority of the people there, people who were black in that particular instance. But yes, white supremacy is something that we should address. White nationalism is something that we should address. Whether or not it's our, one of our greatest threats, I'm not really sure about that. If the De Department of Justice, I don't know what the, what the person was referring to about not prosecuting these cases, I don't think that the Department of Justice is not prosecuting these cases at all. But to say that, you know, I don't disagree that it's something, and even the president himself said that this is something that we should actually look into. So there's no disagreement there. I don't Scott. know what Scott's talking about. <laughs> well, let me tell you what I'm Scott. talking about. 43 of the last 60 mass murders have been committed by white nationalists. That's confirmed by DOJ. Uh, the majority of police officers that have been shot and killed in the last five to 10 years, 
shot and killed by white nationalists. Uh, this is a huge problem, and it's connected to the browning of America. You have a president that inspires these bad acts, not personally, not he doesn't put the gun in their hand, but if you look at his rhetoric and what he says about immigration and immigrants and asshole countries, and then you look at the manifestos of the racists who killed uh, 30 people, 20 people in El Paso, they're mirror images of one another. That's no accident right there. And so if any part of anything the president would say could have any connection to inspiring this type of hateful killing, why wouldn't we stop it? If gun control laws, any part of it could stop the carnage, why don't we do it? America lives in a world of hypocrisy. The GOP and the Democrats are hypocrites. The height of hypocrisy and the depth of ignorance when it comes to guns. This isn't videos. This is guns and access to guns. And you're right, people do use guns to kill people. But if you limit their access to a weapon of mass destruction, then we wouldn't have the carnage. That's what the bar or the ban on assault weapons did for us in the 80s until it ran out. And so we can talk about all these uh, di the dichotomy of issues and politics and what have you, but we continue to die in this country, and nobody's doing anything about it except offering prayers. I don't want your prayers. I don't want your sympathy. That's not going to bring back the thousands of people who have been killed. You know what I want? I want reasonable gun control. Eighty to ninety percent of America, Democrat or Republican, believe in reasonable gun control, and they also believe in the NRA as well. we got to stop that. Uh, Kelly, again, what I'm trying to get people to understand, Scott talked about 43 out of 60. What we are dealing with, the FBI director has talked about it. They've been pressed by Congress. Congressman Benny Thompson told me yesterday on the Times Journal Morning Show, they're going to have hearings next week. We need to understand that white domestic terrorism is real and has to be confronted. It absolutely has to be confronted, but I also want to point out the fact that this is more than just a race thing. Yes, we absolutely have to deal with white terrorism, but at the core of it, we have more mass shootings as of August 5th than we do have days in the year right now. We are in the two, 217th day of the year right now. There have been 255 mass shootings. That's insane. That is just absolutely insane. And yes, a majority of them um, that actually hit the news, frankly, have to deal with uh, white terrorism and white nationalism and the like. And a lot of that rhetoric does stem from our president. So that, I'm not discrediting that. But at the core, even if we took, you're probably going to hear this like for the last time out of me, but even if we took race out of the rhetoric of, of Donald Trump, he still talks too loosely about gun control when he's on podium saying, I can just shoot somebody right here, or he's just enabling people to fight at his rallies. He's inciting violence, and that violence trickles down to the American people such that we have 255 mass shootings before December 31st of 2019. That's crazy, and that gotcha. part has to change. And he doesn't well. know who he's talking to. No, not at all. Uh, no, you we 
should, we should reject the notion that the president is responsible for any of this. That's just nonsense. I'm not going to reject that. Oh, That's just nonsense. Inspired. It's absolutely nonsense. It's, it's as much wouldn't nonsense we, as saying that, be that Maxine Waters and Eric Holder. Yeah, we, we, wouldn't we be, we would be better off, off if so we then, actually so we elevated our own rhetoric instead we of would, listening to the, uh, requiring the president to do it. Well, how about we actually elevate our own rhetoric? How the about president we actually needs to elevate his own rhetoric as well? Be responsible for ourselves. This is critically important. We can do that and then elect the president. One second, one second. Melek, you can sit here and Melek, you can sit here and go say we should do all, but here's what we know and understand. The person who has the biggest bully pulpit in America is the bully in chief. What we know is that leadership means leading. Right. What we know is that leaders are supposed to set examples. And the politicians are not correct. What we're dealing with, allow me to finish. What we're dealing with is an individual who uses his Twitter feed, who uses rallies to indeed incite folks. Language matters. It does. And what Donald Trump, what Donald Trump is consistently doing in his by design, he is targeting his white base. We have seen too many examples. This is not a one-off. We have seen too many examples since he has been in the Oval Office where he has played these games. And yes, Mellet, he is going to get called out. He is going well, to be he held He's to account get out about anything. because that's what leaders are supposed to do. Right. Well, that's going what politics break. is about. We come back. We're going to talk about the black, the black uh, census project. We'll also talk about the life and legacy of Tony Morrison. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Back in a moment. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, you've heard me talk a lot about MarijuanaStock.org. Why? Because I want to keep you informed of investment opportunities that make sense. We've all watched the growth of the cannabis industry. A recent report by New Frontier Data estimates the global cannabis market at more than $340 billion. We know that marijuana legalization is sweeping the country state by state. We also know that marijuana has a good cousin, the hemp plant, with a much higher concentration of CBD. That means hemp gives you all of the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Until recently, hemp farming was practically illegal in the United States and heavily regulated by the DEA. However, the 2018 Farm Bill changed all of that, making it legal to grow hemp CBD in the U.S. and creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. Folks, they need land to grow all of the plants. This is not the rocket science. It's real simple. It's an incredible investment opportunity, and that's where our friends at 420 Real Estate come in. Their business model is simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD grow operations and lease it to licensed high-paying tenants. That's right. They are hemp CBD landlords, and you can get in on the action. My friends at 420 Real Estate decided to do something special for the Roland Martin Unfiltered fan base. Originally, the minimum investment level was 500 bucks. Right now, you can invest in this crowdfunding campaign for as little as $200. That's right. Anywhere from 200 bucks up to $10,000. Let me recap. 
This is a $340 billion industry that is still growing. And you can participate with this little S200. To invest, go to marijuanastock.org. That's marijuanastock.org. Get in the game and get in the game now. Folks, the Black Census Project is the largest survey of black people since Reconstruction. More than 30,000 black people from across the country participated, giving their political beliefs and concerns. This is a monumental task that was undertaken by Alicia Garza, principal at Black Features Lab, the organization responsible for this survey, and she joins us right now. Alicia, glad to have you back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thanks for having me, Roland. So, so the, the, the reason I think that this is important because I love to hear people talk about the black agenda, the black agenda, okay? We need a black agenda. But what you have done is literally talk to black people, communicated with black people who have articulated what they want to see, not just from politicians in Washington, but also in state capitals, counties, cities, school boards. And so it's far more comprehensive. Uh, and that's why I think you by calling a black census project. Yes. So the reason that we did this project, Roland, is because there's too many people talking about black people and what we want for our futures. But there's too little people who are actually asking black people what we want. And so we set out to do just that. We set out to talk to as many black folks as we could from different perspectives, from different geographies, from different experiences. We talk to black people in rural areas and in urban areas. We talk to black people who are conservative and liberal. We talk to black people who were rich and black people who are living in poverty. We talk to black people who identified as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming. And we also talk to black people who were uh, who have migrated to the United States. And finally, we talk to black people who are currently and formerly incarcerated. What we wanted to do was present that black America is not a monolith, but that there are some things that connect us. And that is our actual experience of how racism impacts the lives that we want to live. And so from education to healthcare to wages, we learned a lot about what is keeping black people up at night across the nation. But the most important part, I think, is that we heard a lot about what black people want to see for our futures. And we're really, really excited, not just to have completed this survey, which is monumental in and of itself, but we're excited to turn that data into a legislative agenda that really speaks to what more than 30,000 black people across this country have said that they want to see, not just from their politicians, but from politics, from government, from our democracy, from our economy, and from our society at large. And we think that that is also, one of the most critical elements to being powerful in 2020 and beyond, having a clear sense of what it is that we're fighting for and being able to fight for that agenda in cities and states across the country, as well as at the federal level. So how did you organize the data? How did you organize that? How did you um, sift through all of it? to really make it a coherent uh, layout in terms of the issues for people to follow? Because there's some people out there right now uh, who are, are following us on YouTube, Periscope, and uh, Facebook. I'm sure they like, man, I've never heard of this Black Census Project. And so how'd you put all that together to make it easier for folks to follow? Well, we did a few things. We're really proud of the methodology that we 
uh, that we enacted. So the first thing is that we teamed up with more than 30 Black-led grassroots organizations across the country, and we resourced those organizations in a number of different ways to make it possible for them to participate in this project. We made sure that those organizations that organizations had a full-time organizer, that they had iPads and technology to collect survey responses through. We even made sure that in places like the South where access to broadband is limited, that we built an app so that people could take the survey and then once they got to Wi-Fi or an internet connection, they could upload the responses into the, into the database that we also custom built and encrypted. We also trained 106 black organizers across the country, not just to administer the survey, but to learn the tools and tricks of organizing, which is an important political tool moving into the 2020 election cycle and beyond. If we want our communities to be organized, we have to have the tools to do so. And so we're very, very proud of that. We're very proud of the fact that we moved more than half a million dollars into the field uh, to black organizations that otherwise would not have had access to those resources. Uh, those people went out into communities that we actually specifically targeted. We wanted to know where throughout the country there were concentrations of black migrants. We wanted to know where throughout the country were there concentrations of people who are current, of black people who are currently incarcerated. We wanted to know where are there concentrations of black people who are living in, in rural areas. We wanted to make sure that we didn't uh, miss any of the contours of our communities. And then we teamed up with organizations like Color of Change and Push Black. These are some of the uh, premier online civil rights advocacy organizations. Color of Change with more than a million members online taking action to build power for black people. And we teamed up with them to actually move the census project online to collect data that way. And then of course our partnerships on the ground to be able to collect data face-to-face -face offline. Uh, what we also did was we partnered with organizations like Demos and Socioanalytica Research to help us design the survey and to help us analyze the results. And what we knew was that we didn't want to put these reports out. We have so much data, Roland, we could have seriously sent out a phone book, right, with all of the data that we, that we collected. But what we wanted to do was make it useful for our communities. So the first report, which you can find at blackcensus.org, really looks at the most highly politically engaged respondents from the Black Census and what it is that they want and care about. We also released a report that looked at sexuality and how the data breaks down by people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or other identities. Uh, later this month, we'll be releasing a report on how the uh, results break down by gender. And we're going to keep kind of looking at the different contours of our communities so that people can understand and what different groups of black people are saying about what it is that we want to see. The thing that I think is really important for us to understand and the thing that surprised us the most was that even across different experiences, backgrounds, identities, geographies, that there were some really similar things that black people care about. We care about low wages that are not enough to keep to uh, maintain a family. We care about the lack of affordable health care. We care about the lack of uh, affordable housing, and we certainly care about rising college costs. I'll be honest, I was presenting this information to a group of legislators just recently, and one legislator who will remain unnamed said, well, these are really obvious answers, and so I, I think I need to know what are the next five issues. And, you know, to be honest, we have to just say, 
If they're obvious, then we need to actually do more of a push to make sure that those issues change in black people's lives. It's not enough to say, oh, we already knew that low wages that aren't enough to support a family um, are big issues for black families. What this data tells us is that black people are ready to mobilize around the issues that are keeping them up at night. And frankly, uh, there are times when our democracy is out of step with the experiences of what black people are going through every single day. All right. Well, one of the things that we're going to be doing here at Roller Martin Unfiltered is going through this Black Census project, breaking it down issue by issue uh, for folks to be able to look at uh, and to decipher. And so, Alicia Garza, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Roland. Talk soon. Uh, all right. Absolutely. All right. I want to go to my panel. Kelly, I want to go to you. Uh, this is critically important because what it does is it allows us to, again, look at issues. Uh, Kamala, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, she's actually invoked the Black Census Project several times when she spoke at Essence Magazine, Essence Festival. Uh, she talked about, she referenced this project in her policy positions. And so I think it's important what they're doing is by being able to articulate what black people, how black people feel, then politicians have to be able to address it based upon real data and not just sort of this, um, you know, kind of how I feel today sort of perspective. And this is what censuses are supposed to do. It's not about, you know, wondering if somebody's a citizen or not and things like that. It's about really understanding the people in which you're counting. And what I like about the black census is it does just that. It tells you about your issues. It asks you what you feel like your issues are. And the data that you gather from that actually helps build policy and, and, and initiatives that are geared towards helping us, uh, specifically the Black Caucus, uh, ca uh, caucus. Uh, that's what it does for us. So um, the fact that it happened in 2018, I'm really proud of it. Um, I just want it to continue. Um, Malik, I think, look, you, you're a Republican, and I think this is important mm -hmm. as well. The question is, um, will your Republican folks actually pay attention to the Black Census Project uh, and care what black people care, want and what they need? Well, I, I think we absolutely should. Um, it's going to take more of us, you know, more than no, just... No, no, I didn't say should. I didn't say should. Will they? Well, I, I, I don't know what the effort is going to be to actually engage the Republican Party. Um, I don't know what efforts the... Um, I forgot her name, sorry. Um, that they've taken to actually engage. No, but, 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 but Melek, you don't have to engage. What it is, is it's literally, it's a living document. Yeah. And the question is, will Republicans, will Republican candidates, will Republican office holders actually pull it up and seek it out to say, hmm, okay, if I actually, if I actually care about black people and care about black voters, I need to be looking at the issues black people, black people want to see addressed. I'm asking you, Will your party do it? Well, I, I can't speak for the party to say what the party is going to do, uh, but I think that it's definitely a good idea for the party. They're not going to do well, it. I, but, Send it to every so, not, so if Malik is going to be able to answer the question, yes, I think that it's something that the, the party should do, but you're asking me a hypothetical and say, will they do it? I don't know, will they do it? But yes, it's something they should pay attention to. But I also think that because we know that there is a, a wide gap in responsiveness um, 
even in just engagement with um, the black community and Republicans as a whole, it should, the people, the authors of the census, they should do a little more to actually engage the party. They, they may say, hey, no, we're not interested, but I think that there does need to be an additional effort to actually engage them because they're just not going to know the that this, fault, they're just not going to know that this information is there. I mean, of course, Democrats have been Scott, following Scott, this. Scott, Scott, Bro, Scott, Scott, here's, this is my point. You, you swear Republicans don't use Google. Uh, but Scott, go ahead. Uh, the GOP has zero interest in the Black Census Project because they don't care about black people and they don't represent a lot of black people. So why would they, well, if, you, the if, you mailed, if you mailed the Black Census Project to every GOP senator and, uh, and, and House of Representatives, I guarantee you, no one would read it. They don't even read the report, the, the Mueller report. But, but, but this project, because it's a living project, is one of the most important projects of our time uh, since the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies was founded by Eddie Williams uh, and the uh, History Makers Project, which is another living project that every one of your listeners and viewers uh, ought to look up and get their arms around as history makers. But this census project, whether it's done every year or every several years, right, should be the handbook one of the second or third handbooks that every uh, Democratic uh, elected official should have, especially every CBC member and every state legislature uh, CBC member should have if they deeply care about their constituents and uh, not their own political survival. So I applaud it, actually, well, and someone ought to send it to all elected officials. I agree. All right. Well, again, though, uh, Republicans, it's there. <laughs> if you really right. care about the blacks. Right. All they right, y'all, the Galveston, Texas Police Department issued an apology on Monday after an image was posted on social media showing two mounted police officers, both white, leading a handcuffed black man behind their horses attached by what looked like a rope or leash. The police department acknowledged that the incident may have been unnecessarily embarrassing for the man and apologized for the poor judgment of mounted officers P. Broch and A. Smith. Um, Kelly, I'll start with you. Can, is, can you use a brain and say, ah, uh, not really a good idea? If they had a brain, they oh, would have God. said that, hopefully. Uh, maybe their brain is just programmed to be oblivious to history and optics, clearly. Um, when I saw the picture, I was just taken aback because, but for the uh, the uniforms and the modernization of you know the backdrop and the cars, you would have thought that this was you know 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, police, or Django, you know, or or that you know, <laughs> like just cops mounted on horses dragging a black man by a rope. Like I, I I'm tired of just the blatant racism and the blatant ignorance of it all because you can't say that people don't know this is willful ignorance of the cops of the people who posted the picture like nobody in the chain of command and the and the process to putting things on social media thought hey this doesn't look right maybe i should take this down and report it before somebody else finds out about it nobody did that so i'm not just blaming the officers i'm blaming the person who put it up on social media i'm blaming the person who approved uh putting that in the social media uh, world, like everybody involved just needs to just not be in their jobs in this regard. Mm, mm, mm. Hey, Rose. Can, can white folks, can white folks think 
I mean, my goodness, we got crazy as my people That's section. The I swear, oh. I, I, I swear, somebody got. You know what? This may not look so. We on horses, what? and he walking, and there's a leash, and he walking behind the oh, horses. I'm, 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 I'm just saying. So, Roland, oh, Roland hold, on. hold on. Where was I, the squad car? And how far was Scott? The wait a minute, Scott. Scott. Yeah. Wait a minute, Melick and Scott. Melick, go ahead. <laughs> Roland, I don't know what's going on in your in your home state. You know, <laughs> this is this oh, is not. Easy, they didn't vacation in Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> good one, good one. But yeah, I mean, obviously, this is this is absolutely disgusting. I actually agreed with Kelly when I first saw it. I think I saw it just flash online, and I, I honestly thought that it was something like a movie or something like that because right. it's unreal in 2019 that you would have anyone, but especially a black person in any state, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being drug around with, which essentially you may as well just say it was a noose. That's what I you know, because I, that, I, that's honestly what I thought it was at first. But this was pretty disgusting. You know, it's all the all the it's insensitive. It's degrading. You know, if nothing else, it's absolutely degrading. And so whatever needs to happen to discipline the officers, I don't think that they need to be fired for it. Oh, but no, you don't. Of course not. No, I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think I don't think that they need that to be bad. I don't think they we need to be fired for through the street. But obviously horses and I don't know what part of Texas that is. I know they do that in New Orleans, but I don't know what part of Texas that is where they I guess they patrol. OK, Galveston. First of all, first of all, Galveston, Texas, okay, is Galveston. about 40 minutes from okay. Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And that's where actually hometown okay. of Monique Presley. So I'm quite <laughs> sure she would love to being being here to debate you on that one. All right, folks, uh, let's Scott, Scott, make your point. Just real quick. To next door. I, <laughs> the, the officers looked like they were rather enjoying it because they kept looking back. They had no compunction about themselves. But where was the squad car? And where was the uh, where's the police headquarters? And why was this so <laughs> necessary? I mean, the gentleman looked angry. I, but I wonder if he was white, whether they would have done the same thing. Maybe that because this was running a close second on crazy ass white people segment. I you were trying to choose right, you were rolling you were trying to choose whether you're gonna do this or do this other <laughs> thing that you got tonight. And and the other thing with the cats shooting the Jordans won out. And I agree with you. But this was a close second. Uh, well, <laughs> I just gave it away. All right, folks, uh, we have been, uh, we of course, we, we started the show off talking about uh, the life and legacy of Toni Morrison, 88 years old. She passed away yesterday. Uh, no cause of death has been given. So many people have been, tributes, tributes have been pouring in all throughout the day on social media. Folks from President Barack Obama uh, to entertainers and others have been talking about the impact of Toni Morrison. One of the folks who knew her well, Susan Taylor, of course, editor-in-chief emeritus of Essence Magazine. She uh, just got off of an airplane. I'm so glad that she could join us at Roland Martin Unfiltered, uh, which is one of the reasons why we had this platform is because we want to be able to not only celebrate our own in life, but also when they transition. So, Susan, glad, to glad you could join us. Oh, I'm so glad I could be here to add my voice to a person who, oh gosh, I loved beyond the telling, Tony Morrison. So, you know, it, so, it was what, so interesting what, what, in the beginning of, of her career. Um, Essence, we worked together so much. Marsha Gillespie was editor in chief at the time. And as the years, as the years progressed and uh, Tony Morrison became more and more famous, and then we developed the Essence Awards. We wanted to give her an award. And every year we would, you know, send letters and we would get rejections. How could this happen? 
David Dinkins becomes mayor of New York City, and for the first time, I'm invited to Gracie Mansion, the mayor's home. And Toni Morrison is at the private dinner. So, of course, I couldn't wait to go over to her Roland and say, how could you not you know, accept the Essence Award? We can't offer, we cannot honor any other authors other than Gwendolyn Brooks until you receive it. She didn't even know what I was speaking about. And I'll never forget that because it's what happens when we have people outside of our race who represent us and don't have respect for black media. So whomever was taking her messages mm. was not, they weren't even passing it along. She had no idea that for maybe two or three years we were trying to honor her. So Toni Morrison was a, I, I can't, it's hard to speak about her in the past, but just a brilliant and humorous, you know, witty, witty wonder of a human being. And I just, um, just sort of living with every moment that I spent with her, along with Essence Editors. feel so fortunate. Um, when, Susan, when, you, when, when people talk about her writing, they talk about her impact, this was an unapologetic black woman. She loved us. She loved us. And, you know, the folks in the industry tried to redirect her, the reviews, as anyone knows who's seen the film. The documentary, we're just thanking God that the documentary was done. You know, just weeks before her passing did it come out. And they tried to really marginalize her and minimize what it was that she was doing, telling our stories from our perspective, from her perspective. And what Tony, I think, did so brilliantly, she wasn't a fast writer. I remember a wisdom she shared with me that I'll never forget, and I pass it along to anyone who wants to write. Tony Morrison said, writing is rewriting. It's rewriting again and again and again. It's polishing, you know, until it's smooth and it flows. And to hear her speak about her own writing with such brilliance and confidence just took my breath away. Um, one of the things that also I think is important, you talked about when she was an editor uh, at Random House, she used her position to ensure that another generation of writers got an opportunity. Got, she held the door open for others. She held the door open for writers. She made sure that works that would not have been published elsewhere were published and available. And she stayed in touch with the black press. We had access to everything that was that was flowing through there. She was really a, a life changer, a game changer. And what she did with language, you know, just going back and reading her work as I began doing a few years ago, and just knowing with Tony, you, you go back to the same page again and again and again. What, wait a minute. What did she say and how did she say it? And not, not complex, not, you know, in any way circuitous, just brilliantly, Boldly, clearly stated, Tony Morrison was a master, and I don't use that term lightly. She was a master, and mastery is really difficult to achieve. Mastery takes love, love of the craft, you know, a willing to, a willingness to receive honest criticism, critique, and go back and polish and 
do it over. And I just said this to a young person today in, in Atlanta, here now in New York City, that, you know, when you're in the digital world, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But in the hard copy world, when you're writing a book, know that it's there forever. And for that, I'm grateful today because we have Toni Morrison forever. Generations to come certainly do, too. Susan Taylor, always great to, great to have you here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thanks a bunch. Love you so much, Roland Martin. Thank you, and thank you for reaching out to me today. Love you as well, Susan. Thanks a lot. Folks, our good friend, Dr. Gregory Carr, chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, does an annual trip with Howard students to Egypt. And he posted this video on social media earlier where they honored the great Toni Morrison on their trip there in Egypt. Everyone who, and I know particularly the young sisters here, impacted by Toni Morrison made transition yesterday. That's why I was late on the bus. I was talking to the state. We can get here close. Well, we have, uh, she's the daughter of Sachet. Rather than me pour this libation, yeah, she just, just made transition. Um, I told them, that's one reason I, I told them that we would do this. So, um, it's really up to y'all if you want to say a couple of words and then we'll keep going. Uh, I figured it just felt better that those of you who probably are closer to each other in age, I didn't know Miss Morrison well, I met her a few times. She's very good friends with Dr. Trailer. I don't think I, any, I have Ellen and Trailer for things. They talked freshman comp at Howard together before she went off to work at Random House. But I'm not going to say anything else. Um, the reason why is that when you when you read that up there, yes, Sashat's titles are Nebet Sashu, that is she's the lady of writings. She's the lady of writing. And then Hanut Mejat, she's the mistress of the book. And then she it says Semen Genut Genuut Ek. It's like I have established your annals, like your archives. For Ahau Mrenput, I have established your archives for millions of years. So it's like you you write, and the legacy that you leave in writing is for eternity. And that is Tony Morrison. Something that you said, mentioning archives and thinking about her work being in my archives and our archives and Folks, we're going to end our show this way. We want to get the thoughts of our panel to share their thoughts if they have any regarding Toni Morrison. Kelly, I'll start with you. She was more than a force to be reckoned with. She was the force itself. I remember a couple years ago, I heard her speak in Baltimore, and you're just kind of you were just kind of mesmerized and taken in with her words and her demeanor and the way she said things and the way she thought. And as someone who does write, as someone who you know, related to her on so many levels. The fact that there was somebody before me who literally wrote on paper how I 
think in real life, it validated mm -hmm. my existence. It validated how I navigate the world as a black woman. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. Mallet? Yeah, it's, 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 it's sad. You know, we know that this is life, you know, and people do pass away. But when I think of um, even, you know, Maya Angelou and Octavia, Octavia Butler, you know, people that I actually grew up reading, and so you just know that they're not going to be, you know, with us in person, you know, yes, in spirit. But the good thing is that with Toni Morrison, she's left a line, a treasure trove of um, things that we will be able to just refer back to in the future because it's her writing. It's her own writing, and we know that that never goes away. Just really sad. I Just really sad. Yeah, we, we, Scott? Yeah, we lost a giant for sure, but she was, she was a gifted writer, and you said she was unapologetically black. She celebrated her blackness in her writing mm -hmm. and with her recognitions and the prizes she got. She was tickled pink and enjoyed being celebrated as a writer that happened to be black but was fearless in her writing uh, in, in, in uh, Blue Eye or Gifted Eye, the, 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 the first, the blue, uh, blue, the, the, the blue eye, the most blue eye. The, the bluest eye. eye. The bluest eye, if you will. She was, and, 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 and because of that, she was rewarded. And so she was a Howard uh, graduate. And what most people don't know is that Tony, uh, Tony Morris, uh, Morrison did was a was a uh, editor mm -hmm. for Random House mm -hmm. when there were no black editors whatsoever, and so she uplifted black writers to a place at a time when they normally would not have been discovered. But right. she fought for them internally, and it was a real struggle for her to to leave being an editor and to do writing on her own. Mm -hmm. And her first novel really didn't sell well the first time. Uh, it didn't. It had modest sales, apparently. Uh, but there was another black editor and um, and uh, publisher who really believed in her, and so really pushed it. And then all of us were turned on to the melodic uh, writing of uh, Toni uh, Morrison. So, God bless her. Rest in power, Toni. Folks, Toni Morrison, of course, uh, used the power of the pen to be able uh, to speak to uh, a world that necessarily did not see her as a full American. That goes to show you uh, how important media matters, what she mm -hmm. projected through her novels, what she had to say in her essays. Uh, was just as powerful for a generation of folks as James Baldwin, uh, as Lorraine Hansberry, as Langston Hughes, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and so many others. What it also says to, to people today is that when you are in control of your narrative, when you are in control of your own story, then you are impacting people in a profound way. I can't tell you how many people have stopped me and talked about what it means when they watch this show, when they watch TV One or saw me on CNN. They tell you, man, what you had to say and what you did. Why is all of that so important? It's because we have to understand that media has the ability to control and shape and construct what we see. Everybody is talking about uh, the commentary that Professor Eddie Glaude gave on Nicole Wallace's show, uh, talking about the history of white supremacy and where we stand. Last I checked on Twitter, it has 3.6 million views. What Eddie laid out, we've heard from so many others as well. Why am I saying all of this? Because if there is no place to speak your truth, then who will be able to hear your truth? 
We can't always be in a position where we're asking somebody else, can I? Can I go cover this story? Can I tell this? In, can I do this interview? Can I do this one-on-one? -on -one? Can I shape this? Because then that means that somebody else is controlling our destiny. I'm here at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention. 1985, Toni Morrison was invited to address this convention. What is important is that we have truth seekers, but also truth tellers. And that means we have to have people who care enough about the written word, people who are authors, who are newspaper columnists, who are journalists, who are in television, who are in radio, who run websites, who understand the power that we wield because we have the ability to communicate with an audience. Toni Morrison did that. She changed and touched a whole new generation of writers, people today who never even met her or impacted by her writings. We must understand, like the nation's first black newspaper wrote in March of 1827, we wish to plead our own cause too long have others spoken for us. Toni Morrison's writing will be writing her novels will be with us for eternity. She is no longer here. She has transitioned. But what we have to understand is what legacy will you leave? Will folks remember what you have to say and what you did? That to me is the measure whether somebody lived a full and successful life. I want to thank all of you for watching Roland Martin Unfiltered, broadcasting live from Miami. I want to thank Melick, Scott, and Kelly for joining me on my panel today. Tomorrow, folks, here in Miami, I'm going to be having a Q&A with Tamron Hall, talking about uh, what she went through when NBC hired Megyn Kelly, removing her off today's show and how she is preparing to launch her own nationally daytime syndicated talk show. Uh, next month. And so we're going to be live streaming that here from Miami. And so I look forward to you watching that conversation with Tamron Hall. We also, on Thursday, we live streaming my conversation with Tom Joyner and Sybil Wilkes talking about what's next for them. Tom is retiring at the end of this year. What will Sybil be doing next? We'll be talking about the future of black radio as well, folks. This is all about, again, controlling our own destiny. We also want you to support what we do. Your dollars through our Bring the Funk fan club, make it possible for us to be able to do this show, to take it on the road, to be able to share with people all across the country, but also across the globe. So do me a favor. Go to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Join our Bring the Funk fan club uh, because we want you to be a part of what we do. To the folks who gave today while we're broadcasting on YouTube, I certainly appreciate that. Thank you so very much. And the last point is this. If you want to understand why you have to create your own platform, when we launched this show, a year ago, so on September 4th, okay, today is August 6th, a year ago on September 4th, we launched this show, and I think we had about 170,000 YouTube subscribers. We hadn't really done a lot with it, but we put some stuff on. Folks, because of you, we have doubled our audience. We right now stand at 340,000. 523 subscribers on our YouTube channel. We haven't even, we still got a little under a month left. That means that when you build it, they will come. And we appreciate all of you to, for, who support us. And so please support us financially as well. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, I got to go. You have a great one.
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.